0: I'm praying that the Spirit fills our hearts with so much wonder at the glory of the good news of the gospel and the privilege of partnering together to make that known. I'm praying that fires something in us as a church that we leave this room and we just start telling people. I mean right here, like right here in this city, like right there in the restaurant, right there in the coffee shop. We just start telling good news. Friends, that's why we have a letter like Philippians. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter 2. I hope that this series so far has uh, been an encouragement to your faith, and uh, I I probably will share in a couple weeks just the turning point that the book of Philippians meant for my own life in college, and ever since that time, the Lord has used this letter in a really unique way in my own life, so I'm grateful for for what's here. We're going to look at this text beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to dive right in. If you if you're there Philippians 2 verse 12 is where I'm going to start reading. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me." What a glorious passage of God's Word. So obedience is a, is a really huge deal in the Bible. Right? That's a pretty obvious statement, but obedience is a huge thing. You think about, for example, Matthew chapter 28, some of Jesus' last words to his apostles on earth, in his earthly ministry, and he's leaving them, and he he says to them, go and make disciples, right? him. so what do we do once people decide they want to be disciples, once people believe the gospel and follow you? And he says, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then start teaching them. Teaching them what? Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. To, to keep my commands, everything that I commanded. That school starts on day one, they go down to the water, they come up wet, you start teaching them to obey. So obedience is a huge thing. But Jesus said to a group of people that were standing in front of him in the Gospels, and he says, what? why do you call me Lord, and yet you keep not doing the things that I say? He's pointing out that that doesn't make sense, that's a misnomer, you can't call me Lord and not do the things that I say. He said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey me, so... So this, this love, if it's really genuinely in your heart, it's going to express itself. It's going to issue forward in obedience. It's natural. It's a natural response of those who love Jesus. So obedience is clearly, it's really huge. It's a big idea in the Bible, but it's also dangerous. The issue of obedience is, is dangerous because you can love obedience and reject Jesus. Jesus. You you think about that for a second. Nobody preached, nobody in the first century preached the topic of obedience more passionately than the guys who had Jesus killed. That was, that's our neighborhood. You start talking about obedience, you're in our world. We love talking about laws, rules, obeying, that's our territory. They were called Pharisees, They, they loved obedience, they hated Jesus. And so we need to think clearly and biblically about this this topic of obedience and this passage enters in because it's one of the best places in scripture i think where we can grasp what god glorifying obedience looks like not the other one not religiously motivated earn your way in pharisaical obedience but god glorifying glad hearted responsive obedience to god so we're look at five traits from this text five traits of the obedience that counts the obedience that brings glory to God. Number one, obedience that counts is devotional. It's devotional. It springs from the heart, right? Look, look at those words again. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, my, my friends, just as you have always obeyed. Stop there just for a second. So, notice, notice the tone. So, Paul is He's calling for obedience. He's going to get specific in just a moment. He's going to say, I don't want you to grumble. I don't want you arguing. I want you to be blameless and pure. So he's about to lay down some specifics about what the agenda of God is for the life of God's people. But notice how he begins. He begins with this, therefore, my dear friends. This is not the tone of Paul is not coming in cracking whips. He is not waving his apostolic badge around and saying, everybody listen to me. That is not... This moment, he, he calls them my agape toy, my beloved ones, my dear ones, my dear friends. It puts a, puts a different tone on what this passage is actually doing. If you will, they just sang this great hymn of the faith, this early first century hymn in verse 6 through 11. That's what's there. We looked at that last week. And then it's almost as though Paul says, You may be seated. And then he says, Listen, I love you people. Therefore, my dear friends, and he says, just as you've you've already obeyed, you've always obeyed, keep that up. This is this up-tempo, I think, kind of tone. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Express this. Live out your faith. Dear friends, live out your faith. By By the way, when Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, he's not saying that the church of Philippi has been sinlessly perfect. He's not saying you've never disobeyed him mean, it's been 10 years since you've sinned. No, he doesn't mean you've always obeyed, meaning every single decision and every motive of the heart of believers in Philippi has been perfect. No, obviously that can't be the case. Why? Because he addresses sin in this letter. <laughs> he's talking about disunity. He's talking about grumbling. He's talking about arguing and complaining and selfishness and, and those kinds of things. So he's going to address sin. He's going to bring correction So he's not saying you've been perfectly obedient when he says that. What's he saying? What's the point? Paul says, Philippi, I, I can see that your faith is real by looking at your life. From day one. The moment you turned to Christ in faith, I've seen a difference in you. You've been running after him just as you've always obeyed. This has been the inclination of your new heart. You have new desires. You want to run in Christ's direction. Look, just think about that for our own lives. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? That somebody can look at your life and look at my life and say, I can tell your faith is real because I'm just watching you. And when I listen to you talk, and I can see it, it rings true, it rings credible. I'm just looking at your life, and it looks like you've been changed by Christ, right? Look, anybody can say they're a Christian. James, in the New Testament, he's sort of the, the no-nonsense no apostle. Not that any of them are nonsense apostles. That would be heresy. But James is a little bit blunt, right? And, and he says, talk is cheap. James is the talk is cheap apostle. And he says, look... You can say it all day, show me your faith by the way you live. Let me, let me see it. Don't just run your lips. Let me see your life. He says, let's talk, about, let's talk about the way that you use your tongue. In James chapter 3, he says, you just let that thing loose and just lash, crash and burn and pillage. You just let that thing slay people left and right and, and wreak destruction and havoc everywhere it goes. He says, let's talk about your tongue. Let's talk about real faith, real religion. Let's talk about your tongue. He says, let's talk about how you treat the poor in this church. James noticed that they put all the rich people in the front and they sit the, the poor people in the back. And he says, well, let's talk about real faith. Faith doesn't do this. It doesn't show partiality. He said, let's talk about real faith. Let's talk about how you care for the poor, the orphan, the vulnerable, the widow. Let's talk about real faith. Let's see it show up in your life. Look, faith in Christ is ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ. Let me say that again. That's really important. Faith in Christ is ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ. That's how you see it. It shows up as obedience. This is in your notes. Christians are obedient to God. I know the teaching is really deep here, but sometimes it just helps to say the obvious, right? Christians are obedient to God. It's a telltale sign. It's a mark of the faith. The Apostle John so, so Paul isn't the only one who says and carries this idea forward. James says it. Jesus says it. Peter says it. Talks about their conduct before the Gentiles in 1 Peter chapter 2. The apostle John says it in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3. Listen to this. This is how we know that we love God's children. You Want to know? When we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. In other words, John isn't saying it's all about keeping the commands and he hangs this massive, you know, 500-pound weight on the believers there. He's saying, "No, no, if we hear and we see the glory of Jesus in the good news of the gospel, we freely want to obey. His commands aren't a burden. It's what you want to do deep in your heart. You trust this savior. You believe what he says is good." You believe that what he says is wise. So for Paul, obedience is the natural overflow of a real relationship with God. It's just what happens next when you're introduced to God in a personal and saving way. I love how matter-of-factly Paul says this, right? Therefore, dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, he's just on his way somewhere else. But he's dropped something really important, just as you've always obeyed. In other words, this isn't headline news. This isn't stop the press. Christians are actually obeying God. Christians believe the Bible and are governed by his word. That's not headline news for Paul. I love how the, um, the first thing that Paul says, again, after this glorious hymn, about Jesus Christ, about his sacrificial death, even his obedience to the cross, and then his glorious resurrection, and his exalted lordship over the universe. So Paul, again, he sings that hymn, he seats the church, and he says, since that's true, he uses the word therefore, right after the church is seated, after singing the hymn, everybody's seated, and he says, therefore, what's your next move? Just as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, Paul loves to take massive truths about Jesus and his exalted glory at God's right hand and say, so what does that mean for us, right? He says, we've just sung that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. We've just sung that Jesus didn't cling to his rights and Paul's gonna say, so don't grumble. Don't grumble and complain and argue against one another trying to get your own ways. It doesn't make sense. You just sang the song about what Jesus has done. Is that gonna affect the way that we live our lives? In other words, Paul is applying truth to the church. He's applying it to relationships. Think about that for us. So when we gather and we sing great songs with great truth about Christ and we dive into scripture and we think about what he's revealed here, is what we do when we gather, is it prompting new acts of faith and love and service and obedience, is that what's being generated? If not, something's broken. The wires aren't all connected because truth is supposed to change us. That's where it wants to go. That's what Paul is saying with that word, therefore. After this theology, he's got the therefore. He wants, he's lowering the landing gear and he's bringing these truths in to life. I love that phrase he says next, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is in your outline. The fear of the Lord isn't just for people in the Old Testament. You know, we know, for example, the old sage in the Old Testament, Solomon, who said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One, understanding. But sometimes we read through our Bible, we come to that blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We flip over into Matthew and we think, the fear of the Lord necessarily isn't now, as a New Covenant believers, the beginning of wisdom. We've got some other beginning of wisdom place, because we're not under law, we're not under fear. But look, the New Testament loves the fear of the Lord. The, p- Peter, the Apostle Peter, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, believers, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He's not pitting the cross against the fear of the Lord. He's saying live in the fear of the Lord because you were ransomed. It's still there. Paul just reminded this exact church of what happens when the curtain comes down on history as we know it. When all is said and done, when Jesus appears at the end, everyone will do the same thing instinctively. We will all see him and we will all bow. Bow. It will be almost global, synchronized liturgy worldwide. Heaven, earth, hell, everyone sees, everyone bows. You know, if you ever go to sporting events and sometimes the jumbotron tells the crowd exactly what they're supposed to do. You clap, clap, clap your hands. You know, everybody's supposed to do it. The jumbotron's telling you exactly what to do. There won't be any jumbotron needed. When Jesus appears and he returns, everyone will bow. We won't need instructions. It's what you're going to do. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the holiest people in both sides of the Bible, when they encounter the living God, they fell on their faces. You'll do the same thing. That's the God that we worship. Christians obey, not out of duty, Christians obey out of reverence for God. He is exalted, he is high, he is worthy. Godliness is still rooted in the fear of the Lord. There's still a healthy, proper respect. He is our creator. We are not in the same category. He's not our chum, he's not our pal. He's the one true living God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Two, obedience that counts as spiritual. It's spiritual. So something needs to happen in the heart, not just a new code or new set of instructions. Something has to happen in the spirit of a person to make this obedience count. So it's important, just think about the relationship between verse 12 and verse 13. In your notes, this is something. This isn't instruction for how to become a believer, but rather how believers live out our faith. So verse 12 isn't telling you how to, how to follow or how to become. It's how believers live out their faith. So think about it. Verse 12, for example, doesn't say, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a really important thing. It doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. It says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got salvation. It's, it's there. It's real. Work it out. Let it flesh itself out in the way that you live. So verse 12 and 13 This is the point. The Christian life combines two things. The Christian life combines surrender and struggle. It's not just surrender, 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 passive, rest, Sabbath, and only that. And it's not fight, 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 war, only that. No, it's both. It combines both. It's it's John 15. It's abide in me. It's lay back. It's recline. It's abide in me. But it's also, 2 Corinthians 10, Take every thought captive. It's both of those things. It's, it's rest in his righteousness, but it's also make war on sin. The, the Christian must learn to sing all kinds of truths, right? So, so Christians, we sing appropriately. We sing the truth of leaning on the everlasting arms, but we also sing onward Christian soldiers, right? Both of those dynamics and themes are are huge in scripture it's surrender and it's struggle but notice the relationship between verse 12 and verse 13 verse 12 is rooted in ultimate reality verse 12 is rooted in verse 13 it says work it work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god that's the decisive one it's god ultimately who is at work both to will and to work for his good purpose. So verse 13, friends, is up-tempo. Verse 13 is confidence. He's injecting encouragement into the church. Remember, this is the same apostle who said, I'm calling it in advance. The one who began the good work is going to complete it. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's almost as though Paul wrote the W on the board before the team took the field. I'm confident this is the way it's going to go down. He started a work here. He's going to finish the work that he's Begun. Ultimately, every good work the Christian does is ultimately dependent on the grace of God. You say that again. Every good work the Christian does is ultimately dependent on the grace of God. Think about that practically. Every temptation you resist is dependent on the grace of God. Every word that built up another person this week, every time you stepped out in faith and shared the gospel or reached out to the hurting, every impulse to put God's kingdom above your own was empowered by grace, was dependent on his grace. That that term, God is at work. It's the Greek word energon, from which we get the word energy. That is, God is empowering, God is energizing the Christian toward obedience, He's the one who plugs you into a power source so that the Christian life is actually possible. Look, and think about it. It almost sounds circular, right? That God powers the Christian life with which he is pleased. He powers the obedience which pleases and glorifies him. That God commends believers for the work that he alone made possible. You think about how circular that is? It's just wondrous. That's why the Christian life is... All of grace. He's not just the finisher of faith. He's not just the starter of faith. He's the starter and the finisher of faith. He's the author and the finisher of faith. In that way, you talk about a rigged system. That's a rigged system right there. Even think about the, the nature of the central story of the Christian faith. The good news, the message of the gospel could be summarized in five words. What God requires... God provides. Let me say that again, five words, what God requires, God provides. That's why it's all of grace. You think about all that God requires, and you think about how he provides it in Jesus. What does God require? The wages of sin is death. That's what he requires. In other words, you sin, you die. That's God's requirement. But then we find out he provided it. Jesus took your death. There's a twist in the story. He was punished in our place. What God required, He provided. You think about what does God require? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That sounds like really bad news. We're not holy, but what God has required, He has provided. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. What God has required, He Himself has provided. God requires repentance and faith. And then we find out his kindness leads us to repentance and faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What God requires, he himself provides. Even think about the Christian life and the everyday struggle with suffering and pain and and trials and how God calls us to be dependent on him and requires and calls us to pray and sometimes we don't know how to pray. What God requires, he himself provides. Romans chapter eight says when we don't know how to pray, The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that can't be uttered. God requires that we persevere to the end. He who endures to the end shall be saved. That sounds like bad news because our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And yet, I better make it to the end or I'm not going to be saved. He requires perseverance. But then we come right back to Philippians and it says, he who began a good work will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Everything he requires, he provides. The late, great preacher Matthew Henry used to say it this way, what God commands of us, he must work in us, or it will not be done. That, that's, that's the ultimacy of grace. It doesn't take us out of the picture, but grace is ultimate. He is the author and the finisher of faith. Look, if somebody told you that the story of the Bible is God helps those who help themselves. You heard wrong, I'm sorry you heard it that way because that is a distortion of biblical teaching. God helps those who can't help themselves is the actual true gospel. We couldn't move a finger, we weren't seeking him, we weren't good, we weren't righteous and the good news of the gospel says God is the one who came God is the one who saved. He does the washing. He pays the bills. He gives the faith. He grants repentance. He empowers obedience. He presents you blameless. It's a comprehensive salvation package from an awesome and sovereign God. It's that good. It's actually that good. That's why we make such noise and we get really rowdy and we sing like we're excited about this because it's that good. You put your faith in that Savior and your soul is well. From now into forever and he carries you and he moves you forward and he changes you from the inside out. Believe that message. Today, trust in Jesus Christ alone. Number three, obedience that counts is familial. It's familial. So notice how Paul immediately comes into the category of relationships when he says do everything without grumbling and arguing. Those are sins that only present themselves when there are other people in the room. And he's not just talking about your own nuclear family. He's talking about the church family. He's talking about Philippi. He's talking about the local church grumbling and arguing with one another. He's saying that's the kind of obedience that's supposed to be fleshed out is stop that. Paul puts specifics on the kind of obedience that he's talking about. He doesn't leave it ambiguous. A friend of, of mine told me about her um, family reunion tradition over the years, and they, they continue to do this, where they go to the same place every year, and it's near this river, and they've got a very large family, and the whole family goes out there, and they stay on the room, cabins on the river, and at one point, they all do this thing where they they've all brought different types of flotation devices. And she says some are more understandable, you know, rafts and... Um, dinghies and tubes and then other people will use like empty igloos and you'll just see just this weird blob she says if you had an aerial view you just see this weird blob of floating things and floating people all moving down river and that's my family right but Paul he's, he's giving this picture in Philippians chapter 2 but he doesn't leave this command work out your salvation it's just this big weird blob you know yeah, do whatever impresses whatever, however that strikes you you do what comes naturally. No, he says, uh, it needs to land in the faith family. That's what we have here in the notes. The picture is of a faith family. The call to work out the salvation is tied immediately to this picture. So remember, just put your eyes on the page. Remember where we've come from and how Paul has been using connective language throughout this entire passage. It links all the way back to chapter 1, Verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27 starts this larger section, and just let these words kind of pop off the page. I'm not going to read all of them, but he says, stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. He talks about contending together for the faith of the gospel. So it's about the church, the local church together. And then in chapter 2, he says, so then, in light of that, think the same way. Have the same love, be intent on one purpose, esteem others more highly than yourselves. He's still talking about church family life. And then he says, adopt as a church, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. And then he sings the hymn about Jesus and how he gave up his rights and how humiliation then led to Jesus' exaltation. And then you see that connective word in verse 12. We're still moving in the same line of argument. Therefore, as you've always obeyed, obey. What do you mean? I mean, don't grumble. He's still talking about church life. He says, be blameless. What's the phrase there? Children of God. It's faith, family, language. Be blameless, brothers and sisters in fellowship in the local church. So this whole section hangs together. This is all about, from chapter 127, really all the way through chapter 2. We'll see that next week. It's all about being a humble people on mission together for the glory of Christ. Obedience obedience can be tricky because um, we have this way of compartmentalizing our faith, right? We can do it instinctively. We can do it unconsciously without even knowing we compartmentalize our faith. And so we think we're big on obedience, like I'm an obedience guy, right? We think we're big on obedience, but only to discover we're actually big on certain kinds of obedience, the kinds that I'm knocking it out of the park, Right? that these are the most important obedience. I may mean, not see that there's some obedience on the other side and other people are good at that, but I'm, I'm really aiming at, at these. So we compartmentalize the faith. We, um, I had a missions guy on pastoral staff in the very first church that I served right when Paul and I were married in 1996 and I was on the pastoral staff of a little church in South Louisiana. And, uh, and he began sowing division in the church almost from day one both among the staff, among the elders, among the members of the church. And the church had a horrific split. It's never recovered to this day. It split 20 years ago and it's never recovered to this day. And he then started a house church where he sowed division in the house church. Uh, the, The house church was his own idea and he was one of the first people to leave it and to throw it under the bus on his way out. He was all about obedience as long as it meant Preaching the gospel in Central America, but when it came to not grumbling, and cultivating unity, and being intent on one purpose, that wasn't his favorite category of obedience. He he loved that I'm all over Matthew 28. He wasn't all over Philippians chapter two. We can compartmentalize the faith. We can choose our favorite obedience to the neglect of other obedience. And Paul is saying, hey, just I want this to be really clear. It has to show up in church. Your unity has to show up in the local church, or it's not. It's not real. You're not pursuing it the way that, that Paul is teaching to pursue it. Look, God God loves us too much to let us live that kind of contradiction. He's going to call that out, and he calls that out in his word. So, so there's this convicting truth that's here for them in the first century, and there's this convicting truth in this text that's here for us right here in this room, and it's this. We can't be both grumbling and obedient that is in the full sense of the word. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, obey. Work out your salvation. What do you mean? Stop grumbling. He, he locates the obedience in the way that we treat one another in the local church. So just think about it. Think about it positively, right? If you have children, few things bring you greater joy than to see your children when they're young. So let's just talk about young first. Few things bring you greater joy than to see your children when they're young. Playing together well, I need to add that Play, playing well together, right sharing together, inviting each other to, to join them on this game when you hear on the other side of the door they're in their bedroom and they're playing and you hear them giggling and laughing, and it's like it's just music to your ears. this is what parents it 's like, take me home, Jesus, this is, this is what what we want, right And then when they get older, there's still nothing that brings you greater joy than seeing. Older kids, your older kids, encouraging each other, supporting each other, laughing together, enjoying relationships. So, uh, so my daughter Ellie, we've been in volleyball world up until this past week, and there's been a lot of games, a lot of practices. My wife is a coach of the JV and varsity team, Paul and Ellie is on the JV and varsity team. So we've been up to our eyeballs in volleyball for a long time. This past week was, was conference tournament time. And so in the uh, tournament game on this past Thursday night, Ellie, for the first time, my daughter Ellie, for the first time, brought out her jump serve. And I didn't know this was coming, but she lined up further back than she normally does. And I'm like, what is she doing? And then she, like, started approaching the line with a little bit more vigor than she normally does, and then she jumped, and she served it, and she aced the other team, which triggered me standing up and acting the fool and just going nuts, and screaming, and clapping my hands, ace! you know, and th- so I'm standing up on the bleachers, and there's, there's Paula, trying to be calm and collected as a coach, right there on the bench, I'm shouting over the top of her head, and I look across to the other side of the gym, and there's the student section, and I see Will, Ellie's brother, my son, the guy who was right here, I see him standing, saying, ace, on the other side of the room, and I thought, Take me home, Jesus. Like, (laughs) this brings such joy. Make noise about your sister. Encourage, shout. Don't hold back, right? I love the ace, so I I hope I see more of them. I'm I'm a big fan. As long as they're from our side to their side, I'm a big fan of the ace. But look, when I have long forgotten the ace, I'll still have this mental picture of my son cheering on his sister? Why do we think that God doesn't feel the same way? We think God doesn't want to see that among us? That, that's what God loves to see in his church. You know, back in the olden days, um, you could do this thing that was called a three-way phone call. And if you had some degree of mischief Um, you could either be on the receiving or the giving end of this, but if you were the third person on the call, you might not know that there's somebody else on the line who's just listening in. They're only listening to what you're saying, right? And and that can happen. I, I don't think we think about this enough as Christians. Every conversation that you have this week with members of this church, there's a third ear on the line, and it's God's. And what he wants to hear, oh, how much God delights to overhear the third person on the line. He just overhears you encouraging others, either the, the person on the line or the person you're talking about. And you're just encouraging listening, supporting, and God just seeing all this and he's saying, look, at th- they're, they're weeping with those who weep. Look, they're, they're rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is what I put in my word. They're, they're praying with one another, for one another. They're caring for one another. This is what counts. It's familial obedience. It's brothers and sisters building one another up in the faith. Number four, obedience that counts is missional Obedience that counts is missional. Again, we, we've seen this throughout this entire letter because this is the most missional church Paul knows of. That's why he said, just a reminder, in chapter 4, verse 15, it's up on the screen, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. In other words, Paul said, no checks were coming from many churches to continue to see churches planted, it was only coming from you. Every check had your name on it. Even when I left your area. He says, when I left Macedonia, you started writing checks to make sure the gospel kept moving. He loves the mission heart. Of this church. And here in chapter two, these exhortations are moving in a missional direction. They, these exhortations aren't just staying so, so that the church is healthy on its own and insular and all related to each other. No, they're building momentum, they're going somewhere. Where's it going? Paul says, Here's where I'm taking you. I want you shining as lights in the world. That's his next exhortation. I want you to shine like stars. I want you holding God's word out in a crooked and perverse generation. I want you talking the faith, shining the faith, living the life. And you might say, wait, Paul, now it sounds like you're talking about mission. But what, is, what is purity? What is blamelessness? What does not grumbling have to do with mission? And Paul says, Everything. It has everything to do with mission. The purity of the church, the holiness and godliness, the obedience of the church, the not grumbling of the church, the unity of the church generates light. That's how the church shines. There was a prophecy back in the Old Testament which described a coming day where the Lord would so work in the hearts of his people that it says this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And here's missions, here's evangelism. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How beautiful is that prophecy? And I wonder if Paul, he's so deeply nurtured in the Old Testament. I wonder if he's thinking Daniel 12. That's what I'm talking about. That's this shining Maybe you grew up, if you grew up in church, maybe you grew up singing this, this little light of mine, right, I'm going to let it shine. Join me. This little light of mine, right, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And if you were a kid, you loved the next verse because it let you say, no, hide it under, you know, we love that, right? You grew up singing that song, and in a sense, Paul in Philippians chapter two says, that's That's what I want to see happening. I want Philippi shining, shining its light into dark places, a crooked and dark or perverse generation. So what is the formula? What is the apostolic formula, according to Philippians 2, the apostolic formula for a church that shines? Here it is in your notes. No grumbling, plus godly living, so there's that pure and blameless children of God, plus speaking boldly, there's that holding fast the word of life, equals Shining as lights in the world. That's how a church plugs in and shines as lights. You, you, in other words, Brook Hills, you and me, loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, making disciples of Jesus, that's how we shine. Let me get more specific and I'll state it negatively and then positively. Every prideful comparison this week in your life versus another believer is killing our light. Take that on board. Every husband that's wielding destructive words in his home is killing our light as a church. There are missional implications to our godliness or lack of godliness. Every click on a seductive image is killing our light as a people of God. On the other hand, everything that makes you stronger in Christ stands to increase the effectiveness of our witness in the world every deep relationship that's developing in your small group, every new truth gleaned from Scripture and applied to your own personal life, every gift of wise counsel exchanged this week stands to increase our light, stands to increase the effectiveness of our witness in the world. In other words, we'll be better witnesses if we love one another better. We'll be better witnesses if we're growing in godliness. Think about that the other way around. If the world is in on the three-way call, not God, if the world is the third ear on the line listening in and they hear us grumbling about one another, what do we expect them to say? They're not going to say, wow, show me the way to find that kind of community. Show me this people of light. I mean, I'm just hearing it. I was, I was actually on the phone. You didn't know it. I was listening the whole time, and I want to know where I can find this. no. They said, I don't want that. I got a better community with my unbelieving rock climbers than you guys do. The way you live and judge one another and tear each other up one side down the other. Obedience, friends, that counts. It meddles in this area. Obedience that counts is devotional, it's spiritual, it's familial, it's missional. Finally, it's worshipful. It's worshipful. Verse 12 through 15 is what God wants for Philippi. That's the obedience that counts to God. Paul even uses this language. He says, if I find you pursuing these things, working out your salvation in these particular ways, verse 16, he says, then I can boast. Then I haven't run in vain. My labor hasn't been for naught. It hasn't been for nothing. In other words, this, to Paul, verse 12 through 15, this kind of obedience this is the metric of success. Paul doesn't say, I'll be able to boast as soon as you guys break the next attendance barrier. That's not, that's not what he cares about. That is not his agenda or his primary aim. This is in your notes. Don't measure the church by the standards of the world. Don't measure the church by the standards of the world. I have a friend in ministry who attended a conference a couple years ago and... Um, at the conference, you put your name in something and then different people would win different prizes throughout the conference and they would just generously give different gifts. Well, one of the prizes that was won by my friend was uh, the gift of an evaluation from top church growth strategists. And so it'll be free, you won't have to pay, they'll just show up and they'll give you an evaluation, a free evaluation of some things that you can do in order to grow numerically as a church. And so they showed up at his church one Sunday and the things that they commented to him over lunch after the service was, uh, be more peppy and excited, change the songs, ditch the coat and tie, your transitions have too much dead space, so move things around a little bit more quickly. That that, that was the feedback from the pros. If you want to grow a larger church, you need to ditch the coat and tie, you need to dress differently, change the lighting. Those kinds of things. And my friend was so deeply grieved. You remember Israel in the Old Testament, and Israel had certain qualities that they looked for in a leader, and all those qualities happened to be things that you could see with your eyes. And then Samuel the prophet has to come in and say, Here's the difference between Israel and God. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks, the Lord looks on the heart. And Paul's ultimate desire is the heart of Philippi. He wants Philippi amazed by how great the Lord is. He wants Philippi's obedience rising like incense into God's Nostrils, and he receives it as a fragrant incense before him. Paul's ultimate desire, he, he says, the thing that will convince him that he didn't waste his life, is the service of your faith as a pleasing aroma to God. And he's he's gesturing in the direction of this um this analogy of the ancient sacrificial system. Right, the service of. Their faith, and I'm being poured out as a drink offering, a libation, on the service of their faith. So Paul's Gentile audience, they understand this world. That metaphor makes sense to them. If they wanted to offer sacrifices to the gods, they would they would bring an animal, they would make it a burnt sacrifice on the altar, and then the ancient worshiper would then take an additional offering as a libation, and would pour perhaps a cup of wine on the altar. And because the altar was hot, the libation or the drink offering would immediately disappear in a puff of steam. And Paul says, that's kind of a picture of what what I would love to see in Philippi. You know, and in the Old Testament, sacrificial system is very similar. In some ways, this almost harkens back to places like Numbers chapter 28. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrifice was primary and the pouring was secondary. And notice what Paul does. Paul uses this illustration, and he makes his contribution secondary. Right? He esteems them more highly than himself. Paul says, your faith shining in the world, that's the burning offering. That's the sacrifice that rises. He says, I'm the compliment. I'm the drink that comes after. I'm the drink that sizzles on the heat of your faith. And Paul says, I wouldn't have it any other way. That's how I want to go out of this world. I want to go sizzling out into a vapor, having been poured out on the heat of your sincere faith. Paul says in verse 17, I would rejoice in that. And he says, I hope you would too, because the obedience that counts is worshipful. It rises like incense from the church to the Lord. Look, let me, let me say this. The, the ultimate thing, Brook Hills, the ultimate thing isn't our faith. And I'm using the word ultimate very purposely. The ultimate thing isn't our faith. The ultimate thing isn't our mission either. The ultimate thing is the glory of God. That's, that's at the very bottom. There's nothing underneath it. God's glory in the world. What counts, this is in your notes. What counts before God is obedience from the heart, empowered by grace, expressed in love, extended through witness, and offered as incense. From the heart, empowered by grace, expressed in love, extended through witness, and offered as incense. There is a a modern hymn that was written by Keith and Kristen Getty, They write a lot of modern hymns, but the lyric of this hymn, it reads like a prayer that could have been offered in the Old Testament at the evening sacrifice. It reads like it goes line by line and stanza by stanza through the whole of one's day that's gone by and says, I want that to be pleasing to you and I want this ordinary thing in my everyday life, I want that to have been pleasing to you. It just walks you through your entire day and it starts with this individual life of the believer and then the last verse moves out into the believer thinking of himself or herself as a part of the family of faith. And so I want to close by asking us to read these words together and to read them, I hope. Can we do this? Can we do this in a spirit of prayer? Can we read these words in a spirit of prayer? Because it even speaks about the sobriety of the ending of our days. We, at the end of the day, we will all be a vapor. We will all go up like a puff of steam. The question is, what happened while we had this special thing of the local church called Brook Hills? And so I, I pray that this will be an expression of our hope. Let's read this together. Before you we kneel, our master and maker, Establish the work of our hands and order our steps to seek first your kingdom in every small and great task. May we live the gospel of your grace, serve your purpose in our fleeting days. Then our lives will bring eternal praise and all glory to your great name.